I'm going to talk you through the story of our company in Northern Ireland um, and how it came about. Uh, and we are a very large company and we built it over five years. And we built it in a place where, if you listen to Eva, why would anyone invest in a situation where you've got such low productivity, uh, where you've got a lack of available labour, you've also got a lack of skills, and you've also got 25% uh, of the population are economically inactive. You've also got 40% of the children leaving high school without qualifications. You've also got the highest mental health statistics across the UK. You've also got a generation that are carrying trauma, whether they were involved or not, and whether they've seen things or didn't. Generationally, they're still carrying that, that trauma of conflict. And I wonder what the price of conflict is on future generations. And maybe that's something for a very clever PhD to look at, certainly not me. So I'll get started. So a little bit about my background is I left Northern Ireland when I came out, of, I did philosophy completely by accident and I was completely rubbish at it. Um, but I left Northern Ireland when I was told in my first job, I went to work for the probation service and I was told about a year in to leave my masters because I was doing such a good job they wanted me to come full time, which I did and I loved it. And we were working with prisoners and we were working with loyalists and Republicans and what were called ODCs, Ordinary Decent Criminals. They were your, your, your rapists, they were your burglars, they were domestic violence, uh, you name it. And this was something some of you may know that this was the term, I think it came from Margaret Thatcher's era, where it was to demonise political prisoners, or terrorists as some people call them. Uh, but I enjoyed, I've always enjoyed looking and listening and learning about people, which is probably why I got into recruitment. Um, and so I enjoyed watching and listening and looking at all of these people and trying to find them jobs and training. My boss called me in and said, we're moving into the prison. And unfortunately, you can't come. And I said, what? I've given up my master's, I love my job. And he said, no, you can't come because you failed the security clearance. I was 23, I'd never done a crime in my life, I went to university, I'd been a good girl, so to speak from a societal point of view, didn't even have a parking ticket at that stage, and I failed the security clearance. Fast forward 25 years, I now run all the contracts for the visitor centres in Northern Ireland's prisons. <laughs> I don't make a lot of money, but it's quite close to my heart that I can say that, so... Uh, so having an impact is quite important to me. I've got a personal uh, connection with Northern Ireland, as I think most people to their own home countries do, and I think most people to the world do, irrespective of what label we put on ourselves, whether it be academics, politicians or business people. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I won't tell you any more, but yes, you can watch the TED Talk if for any uh, reason you're bored at any time. So I'll go on to tell you a little bit about, about the company uh, that I run. So I came back to Northern Ireland twice. I left as soon as they failed my security clearance, two weeks, packed up my house and I came to London and I said I'm never going back there ever. I met my wonderful English husband from Hertfordshire darling and I also had an amazing career. That I wouldn't have had had they not have failed my security clearance. So sometimes in life, these things are sent for a reason. I went back in 2001 when I had my daughter and worked for a Dutch company. 
Uh, I set up the office in Belfast, and they were called Ronstadt. And they were very direct, the Dutch, just like the Northern Irish, so we got on like a house on fire. I left because when you're successful in a small country, it's a bit like the Merkel story, bringing all the talent from Syria. When you're successful, they want you somewhere else. So I was brought back to London because Northern Ireland's too small, and I ran some of the companies here. And then I was moved again to Holland to work internationally, where interestingly, I sat at a meeting and I was telling John about this, where we were talking about where to put a headquarters for a large international logistics company. And I was there because I was the international person to talk about the on costs in every country. I didn't care where they put it, I just wanted to know I would get the contract, but I would give them the advice of, of what I knew. And it was going to be Brazil or Australia. And he said, whew, sitting at the room. He didn't look at my report. He just said, whew, you could get kidnapped in Brazil. I'm not going to get kidnapped in Australia. And it's pretty nice I haven't been there. Let's put it in Australia. New York. Shall we put the plant in Paris or shall we put the plant in south of Ireland? It needs to be in Europe. My great-grandfather was Irish. Put it in the south of Ireland. So business people are equally making decisions every day, and I do, with their hearts and their guts, not necessarily with their heads. So it's also interesting for us to know when we're thinking that all these things are so thought out, always about profit and always about return. It isn't. We're not that logical. If we were, we'd be academics. No, it is also with the heart. So, uh, I came back to Northern Ireland in 2013 because my little girl was now of the age to go to school. And we do, for the privileged children, have an excellent education system. For the privileged. For those children that are in the grammar schools. So... The flag protests were on in 2013, and I brought my lovely husband back and my three children by now, and I couldn't believe that actually this place had gone backwards, not forwards. And I heard everybody say, you business people, you do nothing to help society, you just take money out, you, you business people do nothing about politics. And so, <laughs> stupidly, I said, well, I will, I'll do something. So I sat as the chair of the newest political party that was going to not be green or orange, but was going to be fresh politics, and it was going to be the future, and it was going to get all those people who don't vote out to vote. 50% of the people weren't voting, which is why we're stuck where we are. And it was a disaster. But I have to say, it was one of my... I got 13,000 votes. I wasn't that much of a disaster. That ain't too bad. But the party was attacked from every angle. And the two men, there were leaders and deputy leaders, attacked each other and the party, and it crashed and burned. So, again, you can see that online if you're interested in me being humiliated. But it is my favourite mistake, because off the back of that, what I learned about politics, politicians, and everything else was, was just... I couldn't have learned it in 20 years had I have studied it in the textbook. I had started a new company... I hired two people, I had money from a PLC in London, and they only hired me because of my international experience, nothing to do with wanting to be in the Irish market at all. And I think the point has to be made that if you're going into business, if you're going into new markets, emerging markets, post-conflict markets, big business can create business. It isn't just about going in and exploiting things that are already there. Actually, good business, big business and small business can create business and create employment. So quite quickly, off the back of being a little bit famous for a failure, everybody knew who I was, 
So my business rocketed. And I ended up having more impact in, through my business than I probably ever would in politics. So not only in the visitor centres and the prisons, I also run the unemployment schemes. I run the social investment fund, which is working with 17 schools, ensuring that children between the age of 14 and 16, who are most at risk of falling into generational unemployment, do not. Uh, I also run the largest apprenticeship scheme, helping those children who are coming out without qualifications actually get into work and get a qualification. And I run the largest recruitment agency. So we went from me and two people to 200 people, 5,000 contractors in five years, 70 million turnover. The politic failure helped me with that, believe it or not. The fact that people in the community appreciate when you're knocked down that you got back up again. And I think in business, as a snowball goes, as it goes quicker and faster, it gets bigger and bigger. It's hard at the beginning, but it's easy to roll on. And I had to fight for investment when I came to um, Belfast. I had to fight for two million quid of investment from our head office to put in the northwest in Derry, um, where there isn't a lot of investment. Now that is PLC money, which created jobs that were more than £25,000 per year, which was good for that area. We built a big centre, about over a million quid on a centre, which created construction jobs. And I got nothing but negativity from social enterprise and NGOs. I'm glad I didn't even see academia then, so maybe they would be negative too, I don't know. But because we were a big private PLC, negative, negative, not, not to mention the jobs we were creating and what we were trying to do. And I would be very honest and say, you know what, this money could have went to Nottingham or Merthyr Tidville. I'm fighting to get it here. We're making a 5% return if we check in the city. The people, the shareholders, are actually big pension companies. And guess what? If you look at those pension companies, most of them are public sector pensions. So what? You know? But sometimes business people are also getting a bit of a hard gig when we're trying to help society. And so there were other issues in Northern Ireland, and Eve has touched on some of them. So, you know, we know that three quarters of the people want to live together. We know that from the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey. Yet also we know that 60% of people are living with people in neighbourhoods of the same religion. The schools are the same, Eva's already touched on it. Only 7% of children are educated together. I mean, that must be even worse than South Africa back in the day. 7% of children. Me, myself, we didn't have Facebook and everything in my day, I'm 45. But I didn't really truly meet a Protestant friend until I was 19, going off to college. You know, it's hard to believe, it's hard to fathom that these children also will be the same. So three quarters of the young people now say that most of their friends are the same religion. This is where social media is a good thing, actually, because they will connect and interact with other people. So what's all that got to do with business anyway? Well, 88% of people in this survey said that they would like to work in a workplace with mixed religions. And in fact, 86% of people do. 86% of people say they're working in a neutral space. 90% say they can be open about their cultural identity. So what's the difference between the workplace and business and where you live and where you're educated? And it's a few things. 
So in the business environment, everyone's part of one team. Our goal, we have to have a shared goal, a shared objective. So it doesn't matter what your religion is, it doesn't matter what your colour is, it doesn't matter what anything is, if you can play your part in the team. In Northern Ireland, we, had, we brought in the Equality Commission. It was introduced in 1999. And at, at the time, people were like, oh my God, not more bureaucracy. We're going to have to fill in forms for every single person that applies for a job. But it's had a real significant impact. So in some cases, uh, we did see that in particular areas, in particular firms, it was true that we had huge discrimination. So here you can see uh, there were some significant changes in the workforce. So during the Troubles, the Catholic unemployment rate would have been higher, or the Catholic unemployment rate would be much higher than the Protestant unemployment rate, but today the average employment rate for both Catholics and Protestants is 70%. We've also seen that the gap between the Catholic workforce and the economically active Catholic population has closed from 5% to 1.3%. Catholics are now more likely to be promoted than they were shortly after the Troubles. So maybe people like me couldn't have been discriminated against simply because of where we were from or who we were related to at the age of 23 in our prime. And I hope not. So businesses, as some of the largest employers across Northern Ireland, are having a direct impact on promoting equality and creating shared spaces. 87% of people in Northern Ireland believe that better relations between Catholics and Protestants will only come about through the mixing of the communities. The workplace becomes one of the only places where people really mix and build friendships and better relations. So there are some further steps that we need to take. So for smaller businesses that might have 30 or 40 people based in one single area, and if you imagine if everybody's living in these single areas, you know, as in these individual pots of religions, then it's very difficult for those small businesses to get a mixture of um, people within their working environment from different religions. So in the 1920s, the Northern Ireland population was 34% Catholic. And if you're Catholic, you normally, normally consider yourself Irish. 66% Protestant. If you're Protestant, you would normally identify as British. Uh, today, the makeup is much closer to 50-50 with the larger population identifying as other, or indeed, Northern Irish, something that maybe we can all call ourselves. And indeed, the failure of... of of what I'm calling our European project, because Europe was very important to Northern Ireland, extremely important. Um, with Brexit looming, European was something we had in common. Lots of people did not want to call themselves British and still won't. Lots of people didn't want to call themselves Irish. There wasn't really a real feeling around not calling yourself European. So this map shows, and I love, this is an interesting map, but I don't know if you've ever heard the story about the first minister, uh, first secretary of state that was sent to Northern Ireland. He was shown a map like this, only the difference was, here you can see we've got green and blue, and green is Catholic and blue is Protestant. What he was shown by the army on a debrief was this map, but it was orange and green. This was coloured with blue. And he said, who are the chaps in blue? 
that was his extent of his knowledge of Northern Ireland. It was Lord May, of course. <laughs> Love that story. Tell it to my corporal friends all the time. <laughs> so you can see here the makeup. So you can actually see that most of the Protestant populations, so-called British, for the purpose of, of this, are mostly in the East, and Catholics, nationalists are in the West. Um, and interestingly, from a business point of view, a lot of the investment is around the greater Belfast area, which is just here. Um, as we all know, with all the studies about the top cities around the world, they believe in the next 10 years, most business will be around the top 50 cities of the globe. And any businesses and business coming out of there will be in a 15-mile radius. Forget everywhere else. That's where the big hubs are going to be and where the big investments are going to need, be needed. So this is what the reports are saying. But in Belfast anyway, most of the businesses were in that area. So of course you're going to get a bit of a bubble around the big city. Which means that for us, we can see there, 45% of Catholics on there and 48% Protestant. The demographics are going down. In the next 10 years, you will see more Catholics than Protestants. And if Northern Ireland remains a cold house, not just on the Irish question, but if it remains a cold house on rights, equal marriage, abortion, and with the Brexit looming, constitutionally, I think the British Isles is in for a bit of a, a, a tricky journey. Because if Northern Ireland, with its demographics changing, decides it wants to go with the new island, and the new Ireland that everybody's talking about on our side of the water, then I just wonder what the Scots may do. And I hope Brexit was worth it. So, looking at where the funding goes, um, if we look at Invest NI, it's our funding body, Belfast received 11 times more investment than Derry. Now, Derry is about 100,000 people. Belfast is about 300,000 people, and Belfast got 11 times more investment. The east of Northern Ireland received 81% compared to 19% in the west. So we have a real east-west divide. Uh, we also have poor transport links from east to west, and the infrastructure between the two is poor. So it means that large businesses like mine, working across the province, it becomes more difficult. And again, back to the CEO. When our CEO was flying in, he's flying into Belfast, and I said, we're going to Derry. Huh? Can I fly to Derry from Birmingham? Well, yes, uh, but there's only a flight in, and if you want to fly back out again, you're going to have to fly out tomorrow. CEO's time is so valuable, they want to get in, do the job, get out to another meeting, and we didn't have enough of the flights. Never mind that if you go on the road, it'll take you a good few hours on quite small roads. Um, and that infrastructure makes a difference to someone thinking in their head, will I invest up there or not? It's not just about government policy. So the case study is Staffline. Uh, this is the centre in Derry. This was the minister, uh, Stephen Farrer. So we started, eight staff. I lost £200,000 in the first year. Now we're on a run rate of about three, just over £3 million profit. And fair employment monitoring is throughout all recruitment and employment. Some of the other things that I've done is to ensure that if we're going to get talent from the west of the country, we're going to ensure that we've got virtual working. So it's no surprise that we have parity with females and males in our company. Because if you're doing the right things, 
then all the right things happen. When I looked at the, the new, the new uh, legislation that said we all had to present what the pay parity looked like, everybody got very nervous. I was delighted I was paying women 2.5% more. What's there to worry about? You know? Also, it was no surprise then that I, I was just looking at it last night. I have a group of MDs that work for me. It just so happens that they're 50-50 on the religious sides. And it just so happens it's 50-50 on female and male. Not because of any conscious <coughs> bias, but maybe a lack of unconscious bias. Maybe that's why. Um, we also created a recruitment and promotions policy that said any promotion and any new vacancy had to be recruited from within, in and around 80% of them. You aren't allowed to go out, you're not allowed to go external, we are growing talent within. 80% of promotions have to come within. That's really helped us in terms of all of those other targets. So we we did we, we bought a company that had you can see here had two offices, Belfast and Ballymena. I immediately opened offices in Port Down and Derry. And remember I I won the big contract on another company to do all of the unemployment services where we invested over a million. So I was able to use the same office and just open another recruitment office. So one thing leads to another, helps to another. So to conclude, there is no peace without business, and there is no business without peace, and there is no business without people, and all people have experience, and all people are driven from different experiences, and you're all in your seats doing what you're doing because of whatever it was that happened to you through your life and that drives you. And I think for peace and business to work together, it's to show respect, it's to also look at how we can help each other with solutions and also appreciate and respect the differences in the type of people that do the different roles. So thank you so much. I've had a great time. Thanks for inviting me.